unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant the Masha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Age of Vice is the blockbuster new novel by the author Deepthi Kapoor. It's a love story wrapped inside a tale of capitalism run amok, wrapped inside a violent story of gangland politics. In nearly 600 pages, it transports readers from the badlands of eastern Uttar Pradesh to the five-star hotels and fabulous bungalows of New Delhi. To call this book a sensation would be the understatement of the year. Readers have snapped up copies, book editors have issued glowing reviews, and a television series is already in the works. Deepthi Kapoor grew up in North India and worked for several years as a journalist in New Delhi. She's the author of a previous novel, A Bad Character, published in 2015 by Knopf Doubleday. To talk more about the book and the inspiration behind it, Deepthi joins me today from her home in Lisbon, Portugal. Deepthi, thanks so much for coming on the show and congrats on the book. Um, Milan, it's a real honor and privilege to be on your show, especially considering that I um, was reading, you know, When Crime Pays is research um, for well, when I was writing Age of Vice. So this is, you know, this is this is great. Well, th- well, thank you so much. We'll talk more about some of those themes. I, I just want to start, I think, by asking you, you know, how you're dealing with the incredible reception to this book. I just want to read the first few lines from a review of your book in the Washington Post. The reviewer, Ron Charles, starts his review by saying, forget the fireworks in New York, London, and Dubai. The most dazzling explosions to herald 2023 come from Deepthi Kapoor's novel, Age of Vice. And he goes on to say, towards the end of the review, even at 548 pages spread over many years, Age of Vice is too well choreographed to be called sprawling. No, this is pure cunning. Ordinarily, if a novelist introduced a new narrator on page 442 with a 34-page detour, I'd be rolling my eyes in exasperation. Here it feels like some forbidden elixir to be hoarded. I mean, this is just stuff I think that authors, you know, dream of. I could I could keep going, but I don't want to embarrass you further. You know, as somebody who has spent years quietly putting something out there for the world to absorb, of course, not knowing ex ante how it's going to be received, how are you coping with the sensation that this book has become? Well, I mean, the, the Washington Post um, review, the Ron Charles' review, was just, it's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of review. You don't get those often, and you treasure them. Um you know, you, you think about them when when you read mixed reviews otherwise. And, and then you always go back and say, well, I have Ron Charles, <laughs> you know. So um, so when the novel came out, you know, I, I've just been kind of dealing with, um, you know, just doing loads of interviews. And, and actually what's been really interesting, I mean, there's been all kinds of responses. You know, it's ranged from wonderful, this is the best book etc to why is this so long you know and what's why does it suddenly shift gear in the you know in in the in the latter third um there's been a lot of that and i think um there's been an incredible really interesting response from indian readers versus uh western readers and that's something i've been really uh, examining um and I think it's because the Western readers, I mean, they want, you know, they're looking at character. They look at Ajay, who we're going to talk about, but, you know, he's the hero and they want the hero's journey. What They want that arc. Um, and and then when, you know, when I was writing it, of course, I never thought of these things, but I was just writing it to service myself. But 
um, the digressions, what happens, you know, when I introduced a character in the in the latter third, and the way that kind of like shifted maybe the themes of the novel um, is 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 something that Indians can intrinsically deal with, but maybe Western readers have a harder time. And so that's been really interesting for me, just just to gauge the response and to see how different cultures are taking it. And and the Indian response has been fantastic. So, I mean, that's been incredibly, uh, I mean, I've been surprised and very happy about it. I mean, I want to ask you a little bit about the kind of origin story, because I understand that it took about three years to write, but you've said in other interviews that this book was informed really by several decades of living and working in India. I mentioned earlier that you'd been a journalist for a number of years. Was there a particular kind of eureka moment when the light bulb went off in your head and you said, okay, you know, this is the book that I'm going to write and this is the shape it's going to take? Um, no, there wasn't, there wasn't one moment. I think there was um, a creation of, you know, ideas and, and um, I had... My first novel came out in 2014, and that was, a, you know, a kind of um, a small novella, and it, it had some good reviews, but, you know, it didn't really make a splash. Um, but I, I, I got a foothold in the publishing industry. So there was my agent and, there, you know, and, and my editor at the time. What are you doing next? A couple of ideas didn't work. I had always had... Um, an idea to do another Delhi novel, because my first novel is also a Delhi novel. Um, but I was kind of trying to figure out what it would be. I spent a lot of time in my 20s working as a journalist in Delhi, but also hanging out with incredibly wealthy people. So um, I wanted to write a Delhi Gatsby or even, you know, maybe a Delhi Less Than Zero kind of Bright Eastern Ellis kind of book, which examined the lives of the rich and the privileged, um, and, and, you know, the, the damage they do to, to everyone around them, and then they get to retreat behind their power and wealth. But very soon I realized that a novel about the rich in India is really a novel about everyone in India. It's a novel about inequality. And, um, and I think it was in 2012, while I was actually finishing my first novel about character, when the Delhi um, gang rape, um, the girl, Jyoti Singh's gang rape and murder on the bus happened. And, uh, you know, besides, of course, a deep sense of shame, I felt um, it, it led me to start questioning structures um, and led me to start questioning how the system works, corruption uh, in politics, power. Um, and, and then... I think it was that moment when I started to realize that I had to bring in much more, like make it a novel of the world, of, and but not at the same time make it didactic. Um, I, I didn't want to write like a message-driven novel. That's that's not how I work. That's not the kind of novelist I am. So, and I also needed to make money as a prof I mean, as a, as a professional novelist who has no other job, I, I, I needed to find a way to kind of like thread all these needles and, and I, and I thought, okay, I'm going to, uh, try and write an entertaining novel, um, that is also political and, um, and yeah, that was that was how it came about. You know, at the heart at the heart of this book sits the Wadia dynasty, right? Which is this shadowy business conglomerate run by Bunty Wadia, who is in cahoots with the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, a, a gentleman by the name of Ram Singh in your book. 
And as the book says explicitly at one point, you know, in theory, the, the Vadias work under the aegis of the Singh family, but the truth is precisely the opposite, right? So you have this melding of politics and crime and cronyism, corruption, violence. It's a narrative that many, if not most Indian readers will be familiar with, sadly, just from opening up the newspaper, right? And, and reading the stories, uh, not even on the front pages, sometimes they're on like A7, right? And they're in the meat of the paper. Tell us about your process for trying to get inside this story and teasing out these various strands of this interconnected web, right? Because on the one hand, it sounds like, well, a simple thing to do, we all sort of know it. But in fact, there's a lot of intricacy underlaying these relationships, right? That must have required quite a lot of research. Well, yeah. Um, okay. In terms of process, it's very simple. I think my process is I collect stories. Um, I collect impressions of people that, you know, I might have met or I've known for years. I also, as you said, um, I collect news stories. So I used to have a, a scrapbook where I would um, collect all kinds of stories that interested me. A lot of stuff about, you know, uh, crime in UP. Uh, my mother lives in Greater Noida, so every time I was there, I had, and you know, and, and I and she'd keep sending me stories. Later on, I I stopped putting them in a scrapbook and just started collecting them on email because there was just, uh, too many. And um, and then I um, um, so I I do the, the collection of the stories, I save them, I let them percolate, and then I make lots lots of notes. Um, but I never look at the stories or the notes. I just, the very act of doing it um, is enough. And then whatever my subconscious thinks is 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 good or is useful obviously gets transferred um, to the page. And then I have um, a roster of characters from real life and, um, and from these stories, um, and from the news, and then I let them play out in the narrative, for example, and we'll talk about the characters later, but Ajay is based, um, not based, he is in um, a, a, a melding of two people, or two kinds of people, a boy that I met in my travels, when I was um, doing hotel reviews in the Himalayas in my 30s and I was staying in little guest houses and boutique hotels met a young boy um, in a guest house who had a story of loss whose family had sent him away to pay off a family debt and I remember meeting him spending a lot of time just talking to him and then uh, find using his story and then combining it with the story of the young men who would work these private mansions in Delhi as chauffeurs, as, you know, well, butlers, you don't, you don't call them butlers, but domestics, but they're there all the time. You know, they're 24-7, they're always there to serve the, the people, but also there at these parties that I was invited to. So when I combined these two stories, the character of Ajay was born. And um, so that's um, one part of the process. And then the other part is a lot of research. So I read um, lots of books like yours. And um, there was Josie Joseph as well. Uh, lots of uh, academic papers on caste violence, on uh, land demolitions, um, on, you know, all kinds of things, you know, just, and that's, that's why, as you said, it's, 
I mean, I'm trying to, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm creating a fictional world, but I try to root it as much as possible in real life. So this is the part that I find as somebody who works exclusively in the world of nonfiction to be the most uh, interesting and impressive, right? Because I think we have this uh, idea, those of us who who are on this side of the, uh, of the ledger, you know, that... Um, behind you somewhere deep the you have a, a wall where you have a bunch of color-coded index cards with arrows and it's almost like i don't know if you've seen that show homeland with claire danes where she's trying to put together the piece right this crazy wall of all these interconnections but that is not at all it sounds like what the process is it's much more organic i guess you could say right and you sort of follow your your gut yeah uh, very much so it's uh, and I think it's probably sense, a sensible idea to have that color-coded wall, um, especially towards the end of writing it, when I felt like I had so much going on in my head with all the different timelines, the characters, more characters crowding crowding my head. And that's when it, I felt at some point of time that my I was going to explode. Um, but that was just towards the end of the writing process. But uh, yeah. So, so I mean, uh, yeah, that, that that's worked for me, um, and and um, I really admire, but I don't think I can do it. What you do, you know, how I mean, I, I was reading your book again, and and I was just marveling at you know how you bring in all that, all the research, but all the different, you know, you have like so many different people and so many different like opinions studies and then you combine it with your own um, detailed interviews so i would love to ask you how you do that because it's it's really organized <laughs> and, I, and i really admire that organization well it's funny it's funny you say that because i um you know it's almost like a fever dream now when i look back on it i don't really recall how i sort of stitched all the pieces together um I mean, you know, at, at the base, there are a series of, you know, uh, labeled Word documents, right, where I started to cut and paste different citations and ideas and articles and links by theme. And but, you know, the person who has really mastered this and I, I'll, I'll put a link in the sh in the show notes is um, uh, a colleague, Vinay Sitapati, who's written a, a very well received book about Narsi Morao. And he's written another book about the BJP before Modi. And he um, he has the most amazing uh organizational slash writing process i've ever seen and if if you listen to amit varma's podcast the seed and the unseen his episode vinay vinay actually describes it in great detail where he basically has and i've seen it this giant binder with sort of dividers for each chapter and uh as you open up one of those dividers or turn the page sort of he starts putting things in kind of chronological order from interviews to newspapers to chapters to books. And it's like everything is coded and everything is organized and it's all in order. And um, I, I sort of, uh, you know, kind of I'm always curious because I always feel like there's a way of, 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 of doing it, doing it better. But, you know, one of the things that, that you said, Dipti, made me think about the sense of place that one feels in your book, right? I mean, 
you have specific regions in India that are featured almost as if they're characters in and of themselves. So you have uh, Greater Noida, you have Eastern UP, you have Manali, you have Delhi, you have the farmhouses of Meroli, you have, you know, this sense of immersion. And, you know, you, you, you've said elsewhere that, you know, half the research for the book was, was living it. But take a character like Ajay, who, you know, comes from, from the Hindi heartland from very little, is essentially sold off um, to a contractor, finds his way to the foothills of the Himalayas where one thing leads to another and he essentially becomes this sort of manservant or butler to this scion of, of the body of family, Sunny Wadia. Um, uh, you know, help connect the dots for us. How did your lone life experience provide you with insight into such a wide diversity of settings, right? Really where you're going from one end of the spectrum, socioeconomic spectrum to the, the absolute other extreme. Well, um, I, I, and, I, and I've said this in the past as well, I, I suppose I did live um, a large part of these. So I, I use settings that I've, that I've spent time in. You know, I, I can't, for that reason, write a novel set in South, a certain part of South India, for example. I can't write a novel set in Andhra, you know, because it's not going to happen. My family's from UP, uh, and I grew up, uh, I was born in Muradabad, um, but my grandma was this um, uh, doctor, gynecologist, who um, worked in government hospitals all across UP and then set up her own private nursing home in Firozabad, which is an hour away from Agra. So, and when she was doing that, and she's a widow whose um, husband was a police officer who was um, with the uh, British, um, uh, he was, I think, yeah, he was with the British. And then when India became independent, he became an, you know, an officer with the ICS. And then in 1952, he was chasing, um, bandits um, in his Jeep um, late at night, and he was a fast driver, and he banged into a tree and died, and then that's how she basically went back to school. She was only 27 at the time with three kids. Um, but there was some ancestral property in Ferozabad um, that was very highly prized because right, it was right at the start of town, and she had to fight off the land mafia uh, to, to get her property. And then she built this nursing home, this hospital there. So we grew up listening to stories, going there for all our summer holidays and listening to stories of her squaring off and fighting off these, these bandits. And then uh, these very same, this, this land mafia ended up basically becoming, ruling the state later in the 90s. So, so, so that that connection between muscle, between these muscle men and how they eventually became politicians was something that I saw play out in um, my grandma's life. And, and just basically, again, hearing these stories. Um, and then when I was 18, I moved to, I was in a boarding school in Dehradun. Um, and that's, again, when I grew up with very, um, the sons of extremely wealthy um, politicians, industrialists, businessmen, you know, important people in India. And of course, then you, you're watching, and I, I didn't come from that kind of family, but you know, I always had, uh, I was always in the room with them. And, and that also helped with the research because you're, what, you're watching these young boys who, um, who then inherit these vast empires, you know, and these empires could be pol 
you know, you could, they could become politicians, they could become godmen, they could become all kinds. And, and India is a traditional society. Normally, the son will inherit the father's business, you know, and the, could be the business of politics, as you know very well. So there was that. And then Delhi. I, I, I studied journalism. I, um, and then I worked as a journalist for years. And I basically, my, my journalism was not, I, I wasn't a very good journalist, uh, but I, I had, a, um, and I was trying to escape a bad family situation at home. So I drove uh, my car a lot, but my brother had left his, um, the city and he had left me his car. And so early twenties, just spent a lot of time driving around, talking to people, collecting stories. This was also the early years of the millennium. So, you know, change was afoot. I mean, India was transforming and Delhi was right at the center of it. It was uh, changing from this very sleepy city into this global capital. And, um, you know, everything was changing and I was right at the center of it. And I was, you know, basically doing these small news reports or about, you know, going and going for the inauguration of the first metro line or, you know, going to report on the first mall that's come up, or the, ball, or the first bowling alley. And it was only later, of course, that I was able to look at all this change and put it in context. But, uh, but, but I think living those years in Delhi and then at night um, partying a lot. Um, and that's, of course, also makes its way into the novel. So, you know, those, those crazy big Gatsby-like parties in these private mansions and, and uh, farmhouses in Nairoli. And then it was um, around uh, late 20s, I quit everything, moved to Goa, became a yoga teacher. And then, uh, but I was still doing a lot of freelance writing and uh, started to travel a lot with my husband. And, um, you know, that's when we were in, we went to the Himalayas and we were doing these uh, hotel reviews. I mean, and it was a lot of this kind of unstructured travel that also really helped. Um, yeah, so, so all of that made its way. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I mean, there have been, as I was just thinking, <clears throat> so many good books of nonfiction that involve tremendous reportage on the underbelly of Indian society and various connections to politics, the economy, society at large. So I'm thinking of books like, you know, Snig the Poonam's book, Dreamers, or Sonia Falero's book, The Good Girls. Mansi Choksi has a new book, uh, which I really love, called The Newlyweds. I mean, there are lots of others, of course. Where, you know, you on the one hand are working in the realm of fiction, but to what extent were you driven by the work of nonfiction on India? I mean, there is an alternate universe, Deepthi, in which you could have written your book, frankly, as a nonfiction narrative, right? I mean, it seems so outlandish on the page, but in fact, these, as you mentioned, are really real stories. I mean, how do you think of that duality between the two genres? Hmm. Well, I, th this is the thing. I don't actually think I can write um, 
nonfiction and in the same vein as, you know, all the writers you mentioned, but also yours, for example, which I, you know, it's been a big influence to your book. I think um, it's easier for me to write fiction because I, um, I can, I can stay close to the truth, but then I can play with it too. Um, and, you know, you can exaggerate. Um, I did a couple of essays for Granta, nonfiction essays. One was on um, a Great Anoida. So my mother moved there and it was just this birth of this very strange city on the outskirts of Delhi and all the different things that were happening around the time. So that was fun. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I often think about, I mean, I, I just don't think I'm very good at it, nonfiction. So yeah, I'm, I'm sticking to my, to my world, my lane. <laughs> well, I, I think <laughs> and, and anyone who publishes incredible influences from everyone else. So anyone who publishes nonfiction in Granta is clearly doing something, something right. Uh, I, I want to just kind of ask you about a scene in the book, which is a kind of pivotal scene. At least I thought it was a pivotal scene where, you know, Sunny Vadia, who again is this kind of, you know, heir to this great business dynasty, um, who's kind of struggling to find his purpose and his identity. He's, he's in the pool at his family's farmhouse outside of Delhi and his father, Bunty, unexpectedly shows up, right? And everyone is kind of caught off guard. And Sonny is hoisting himself out of the pool. Uh, and as he's doing that, Bunty approaches and, and places his shoe in the middle of his son's chest and just kind of kicks him back into the pool. And, you know, tell us a little bit about the setup for that scene and the weight it carries. Because Sonny's girlfriend, Neda, who's, who's a journalist, who's another one of the main protagonists, sees this happen from a distance and it scars her almost as much as it scars him, it seems. You know, what's tell us about the broader kind of symbolism there. Well, um, well, first I wanted to show, and there's a lot of, um, you know, talk about how Bunty is this very feared um, head of the family and everyone's always talking in whispers about him, but, you know, he hasn't really made his presence felt. Um, so I wanted it to be quite dramatic and, you know, this, 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 that Sonny is, is, and, and, and to show, I mean, immediately with that, um, in that scene with, with Bunty doing that to Sonny, you show that, you know, their relationship, you show that it's one built on fear and that Sonny will never be as ruthless as his father. So that was, you know, one of the, the reasons that I wanted to do that. But also I remember, um, just from my friends who have these very powerful um, fathers, how incredibly terrified they were of them. And and I wanted to find a way to, to write about that. You know, I, I remember the fear that um, I would see sometimes in their faces when um, there was some, you know, your father's coming up, all of us were in a, in an apartment in this incredibly, he was like a playboy, this person I know, and he had, you know, a very powerful father. And and suddenly, you know, everyone's kind of like drinking champagne in the living room and, and talking and doing everything else. And then um, there's news and the father's coming up and there's this, this everyone froze and then the fear that crossed this person's face. I, I remember that and thought, okay, one day I'm gonna write about it, but I'll find something else and find another scene. Um, I'll find another way to put it. So, yeah. 
Neda is, as I mentioned, one of the main protagonists of the book. She works for what sounds like a kind of progressive, you know, fight the power sort of digital media operation. And she's caught between two extremes herself, right? On the one hand, she kind of wants to put the body of family and their ilk in their place and hold them accountable. Um, but she also has this irresistible kind of fierce attraction to, to Sunny Vadia that she can't seem to quit. Um, you've said in other interviews that, you know, writing a book about characters like Sunny and Neda was an idea you've had in your head for a while. What was it about the dynamic between these two, right? The kind of crusading journalist and this kind of, I don't know, ne'er-do-well kind of scion, you know, that, that kind of captivated you. Well, I, I'd, I'd argue that Neda isn't a crusading journalist. She wants to be one, but she's actually not very good at her job. <laughs> she gets, and and then again, um, the, the dynamic between Neda and Sunny is that she is the daughter of um, culturally powerful, you know, elites um, who live in a you know in a powerful address in Malchamarg in South Delhi. Um, and they, her mother just gets her that job by making a phone call. And of course, there's all that nepotism that happened and still happens in, in you know, this upper echelons of Indian society. So, um, and, and it was um, th this kind of clash between old money and new money that Sunny and Nether represent. And also between the the insecurity and brashness of Sunny versus the the... I suppose comfort, but also complacency of a person like Nether. You know, she's very, she's she's ensconced in her world, and she doesn't really understand how privileged she is. Um, and and Sunny is this upstart who is insecure about his family's growing um, power, but also wealth, and know it knows that um, it's it's not entirely clean, and he wants to launder it in some way, the reputation and and the money. So and he's not, you know. And he also, of course, has misgivings about whether he's up to, you know, the task that his father wants him to be. I mean, he is the only son, so he will un one day inherit this vast uh, fortune. So that was what I wanted, uh, you know. So and and of course, the fact that you know they also just um, two young people who are attracted to each other, um, and 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 Neda is, you know, she's seduced by what he represents because he also represents change you know and she's bored of just this whole sleepy city he represents this idea that india is changing and and delhi is changing and, and india doesn't need to be this um creaky socialist country anymore so so that's again something that i wanted to show there's a scene towards the end of the book where sunny is sort of scheming with dinesh singh who is this uh ambitious son of the UP chief minister, Ram Singh, and they're scheming about ways in which they might further their own careers, perhaps at the expense of their fathers. And, you know, Dinesh is trying to counsel Sonny against going forward with a controversial land deal that could alienate farmers who we all know come election time um, are, are incredibly important, could be existential. And, and you know, Sonny counters... Uh, by saying, you know, you might be finished, uh, you the politician, they'll vote you out. But the next guy who comes along will smell the money, <laughs> smell my money, and he'll smell it and run to my father and he'll fall in line. Uh, and, and Dinesh replies to this saying, look, sooner or later, the people will vote in somebody who can't be bought, right? And, and Sonny responds saying, well, but everybody can be bought. 
And there's a sense of real deep cynicism there, right? Is that something you share about the current state of Indian politics? I mean, you've been observing this obviously very keenly um, from near and far. I mean, do you get a sense that sort of things are changing? I mean, can everyone truly be bought? I feel like I should ask you that question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think that, yes, um, everyone can. I mean, Sunny is right in thinking everyone can be bought, but at the same time, um, you know, there is also the idea of ideology that can trump, you know, just material, the pursuit of, say, material wealth. And, um, you know, what I wanted to, because we are, we're at this point of time, it's 2008. So it's the, uh, a time of, uh, rampant growth, but also crazy amounts of corruption in India and all the scams that, you know, will come to light later and will lead to middle class resentment. And, and will eventually um, lead to a kind of a movement, an anti-corruption movement, on the back of which, um, you know, and, and that's the movement that Narendra Modi comes to power, you know, on that moment, in that, in that moment that was created. So, so it was just really interesting because um, I think that, you know, and this is something I want to ask you. I mean, do you think everyone can be, everyone can be bought? But there's also, of course, different ways of doing it where you can be smarter about it. And I think that's what Dinesh is saying, that you can't completely loot the state, you know, which is what um, my father and your father are doing. They've forgotten that they have a a duty um, to, you know, sort of there's also governance. So, so, I I mean, this is what I'm also interested in, 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 in that. I mean, this is again, the question that I will answer or try and answer or at least examine because I don't believe in answering anything um, in the, in, in the next two books which will lead up to the present moment. There's different ways of looking at it, right? I mean, on the one hand, um, I think there's truth to what you're saying, which is that there are different ways of achieving the same objective, right? And um, if you go back to the UPA2 era where there were these quid pro quos that seemed so crass and so brazen um, and and almost so over the top, right, of basically in exchange for X, I will grant you Y sort of license. You know, you you compare that to the current scene now where, um, as somebody put it, you have corruption without the scandal, right? So, for instance, the whole onset of electoral bonds, the idea that there can be a fully opaque instrument of political funding where neither the donor nor recipient has to disclose the transaction um, could involve the very same quid pro quo, right? But it's now been completely suppressed, right? And and nobody, no voter, no civil society organization, no media outlet would be able to sort of, you know, connect the dots, right? So in that sense, I do think... You know, uh, Sonny is right in that you know you can be bought and sold, but it just the, the the shape changes. But but on the other hand, you know, I do think there is something incredibly volatile and real about the power of voting and and politics, right? That make things very unpredictable, right? I mean, you know, frankly, it's hard to imagine, you know, going back to 2012, that um, 
you would end up with uh, a, a new party called the Amadmi Party that would not just do well, but essentially decimate <laughs> these two political parties, including the ruling party of the country, right? Uh, partially on the basis of this idea that, you know, we're somehow different. I mean, it's another debate uh, we could get into about whether they truly are different or not. Um, but in a sense, you know, I do think that... Um, What's so powerful about the practice of democratic politics is that, you know, there is inherent inside of it this kind of creative destruction, right? That that is is very hard for us to 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 really fully understand ex ante, right? I mean, even if you go back to the Modi moment, I mean, most of us who are in the world of doing political analysis, we're used to saying that, you know, coalitions are just a permanent feature of Indian national politics. We can't think of creating a, 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 a union government that does not rely on some kind of hodgepodge of coalitions until we were all kind of proven wrong, right? Not just once, but then sort of twice, right? So I do think that, um, I mean, that in some sense is the allure of, 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 of politics, right? Yeah, and also the the the, you know, every time you you tend to maybe get depressed about you know the situation, there's always the idea that it's very unpredictable. Things change quite quickly sometimes, and you don't know what will happen. Um, having said that, I, I I also know, I mean, from just conversations between people I've known who are in um, politics now, um, you know or families who've always been in politics who say that, you know, um, we can win this election because our um, our businessman friend will provide, um, you know, alcohol for every member of all these many villages in the constituency. Uh, so all the male members will get a bottle of liquor and the, and the women will get saris, you know, and that's it. That's all it takes. So, you know, so there's that. But then, of course, it's also... Um, they can, you know, the, the people can take the liquor and take the saris and then go up for someone else. So there is that too. So yeah, it's it's really interesting the the kind of shifts. Um, and 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 again, as you said about corruption as well, it just I think you know maybe you're very right. Like the scandals have stopped, but the corruption continues in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah. And, and I think it also, you know, there's so many contextual factors involved, right? So again, if you, not to belabor the point, but you go back to 2012, 2013, and it's very easy to paint a narrative about natural resources, this sclerotic party led by this dynastic family whose heir was kind of born with a silver spoon in his mouth and, and the kind of corruption narrative kind of wrote its wrote itself. Right. Again, you fast forward to the current moment, I'm very skeptical that trying to, as an electoral matter, link Gautam Adani's fortunes to the prime minister is going to be very successful. Number one, because I don't think the story uh, and plot line, so to speak, is very easy for an ordinary person to, to follow. And number two, is it sort of premised on the idea that a large chunk of the Indian population will believe that Narendra Modi is corruptible, which I actually think is a is a is a prior that would be very difficult to get them to 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 kind of agree to, right? And so, um, so a lot of it also depends, right, on these other sort of factors, which which are which are looming there. I want to ask you a little bit 
deeply about the future, which is a, a which is a bit of a, a dangerous thing to do to to, to ask a novelist. But you know, uh, as you mentioned already, that the book has been purchased by the cable channel FX. There are, are plans for a series. Was this book? written with the screen in mind um and if, if if whether it was or wasn't you know how involved will you be in the in the adaptation of taking this from the page to the screen it wasn't written with the screen in mind but i you know i do write visually i i think visually so so that i think certainly helped um with with all the interest and i am extremely involved in the adaptation uh, because of all this interest as you know able to leverage um, writing the, or at least being part of the writing um, the screenplay um, with my husband but but also at the same time I'm working on the books so I'm trying to bring in more people um, and uh, yeah I mean it's it's incredibly exciting but also very challenging um, because you're working with Americans you know who have um, a limited idea of Indian politics and why should they you know they don't need to and you know so it's it's kind of we and and this I, I don't know if you face this obstacle sometimes I think about it anyway is that because I I can I write in English the characters you know talking English um there's an idea that they could be you know they're western um but they're very different you know we're Indians are very different um culturally um from Americans you know, you you often don't say what you think um, because you're taught from an early age never to express yourself, and all kinds of things. So so it's it's been you know, and then of course there's a whole Ajay problem because everyone just wants more of Ajay, more of Ajay, and it's like no no no, it's it's an it's a novel, it's a it's it's a whole different, it's a whole world, there's a cast of characters, it's an ensemble. So so th- there are um, so some really um, complex equations to solve but it's fun my guest on the show this week is the author deepthi kapoor her new book is called age of vice uh, to call it uh, a page turner certainly uh, doesn't do it justice it's been an instant bestseller on the new york times an absolutely fabulous read deepthi we look forward to reading parts two and three to watching age of vice on television and and congrats on all the success uh, very well deserved and thanks for taking the time to talk to me about the book oh, milan it was just a real pleasure to be on the podcast with you thank you Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nitya Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.